Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Lunarverse podcast. My name is Charles Liu. I would love for you to call me Chuck. My friends do, and I hope you will too. Today, it is such a pleasure for us to have Dr. Jackie Villinson as our guest. First, let me introduce our co-host, Alan Liu. Alan, how's it going? Hi, it's going well. (laughs) Really glad that you're with us. You're going to be feeding us questions from people who have sent us questions over time and also just join in conversation because you have huge amounts of unbelievable knowledge of random things. And I just love (laughs) hearing that happen. So thank you so much. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. So Dr. Jackie Villinson. Jackie, hello, hello, hello. Uh, I want to tell people that I met Jackie when she was a a Jansky postdoctoral fellow. It's one of the prize postdocs. Uh, in the field of astronomy while she was at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory in Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, But she has wide expertise, has traveled all over the country, currently is at Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York. Right, Jackie? Welcome and hello and thank you for joining us. Yes. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm really excited to do this. And also my palms are sweating. So <laughs> happy to be here. don't you worry, we're just having a great time. And, and you know what? Uh, astronomy always makes my palms sweat. I, I don't know why. It's just a fun <laughs> thing. To do. But um, we usually start by sharing a cosmically cool thing. And today, the cosmically cool thing I want to talk about is a weird and fun exoplanet system uh, called K2-290. Now, Jackie, as you'll find out later, is an expert in exoplanetary systems and their host stars, and you study them using radio astronomy, which is very cool. But K2-290 was discovered, I think, with the Kepler satellite, right? Yes. So because it has K2 in the name, that means it was discovered by the Kepler satellite after one of its reaction wheels broke. So um, the Kepler satellite was designed with reaction wheels, the little things that spin in it and let you reorient it Mm -hmm. to point in different directions or keep it stabilized so it can always point in one direction. Uh And when I believe actually two of those reaction wheels had broken, then the team at NASA had to think about how could they adapt the satellite to still be able to use it? And that's when the K2 mission started. They came up with a scheme to still get it to point at regions of space at stars that are kind of in the plane where the sun is, but I think opposite wow. the sun. And everything that they discovered in that new operation mode was the K2 system. So wow. I was in grad school when, when Kepler broke and it was I know everyone was kind of depressed and it was so exciting to see that after it broke and we were so scared for it, that it still did so much amazing science. That is so cool. I, I, I love that story. I did not know because I study galaxies. So I did not know what the difference was with your, between original Kepler and the K2 stuff. I just figured it was like another generation of Kepler data. But now you say that it's because of hardware failure that this happened. That's just amazing. And I love that, you know, despite something messing up, we were still able to get more science out of it. Yeah. I think it's terrific. Thank you. That's cool. Anyway, K2-290 is a system that has three stars and two planets orbiting one of those three stars. And those two planets are retrograde orbits, which means they're going in the direction opposite from the direction that that star is actually spinning. 
this is like a wild, crazy system. Imagine like, you know, those, uh, like a whole bunch of tops spinning in all different directions and not really working right. But a recent paper that just got published suggests that possibly the reason this happened was because the other two stars, uh, the B and C stars at different positions are orbiting in such a way that the, the B star is causing a problem and changing the dynamics. And the C star is causing another problem. Well, I don't know if it's a constant problem, but it causes yeah. another dynamic that is changing the orbits. And so it's just another example of celestial mechanics doing its crazy thing as we're trying to figure out like three planets, two, uh, two planets, three stars. Um, it's like Tatooine, but even more cool. So, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Sorry, I'm, I'm still a, a Star Wars person and a Star Trek person. I, I like them all, but I still think of Tatooine. I know, Alan, you saw uh, episode nine of Star Wars and, and were, maybe you were underwhelmed. Uh, I, I thought it was cool just because I'd waited 42 years for the final. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, yeah, I had a lot less time to wait for them and I was like, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the right way to put it. Well, okay, so that's the cosmically cool thing of our episode now. It's time to get to a question. Alan, feed us. Okay, cool. So our first student question is from, I want to say, Gene from New York City. Is life possible on exoplanets? Oh, Jackie, take it away. What do you think? So I love this question. And one of the reasons I love this question is that we don't know the answer yet. And questions that we don't know the answer to yet, those are the kind of questions that get astronomers excited. And it's what we do for our jobs. So Jazz I was thinking that. about it, and I think there's probably tens of thousands of people around the globe working on this exact question, is life possible on exoplanets? And hmm. this is a really big question. There's so many factors that go into it, like what size of planets could life exist on? And what sort of life are we talking about? Are we talking about intelligent life and what that means, communicating life, technological life. Yeah. Are we talking about amoebas? And the definitions of the sort of life we're looking for tend to be a little different when you talk to solar system scientists versus exoplanet scientists. Ah. Solar system scientists are often like, oh yeah, let's look for microbes and stuff. And so they consider life to be possible in a very broad range of environments, like anywhere there's liquid water, um, such as um, moons that have moons of outer planets that have a layer of ice on them, but then have liquid water under the ice. Solar system scientists are like, ah, that could be a habitable moon where life could live. Whereas I mean, sure. extrasolar astronomers studying planets outside our solar system, they're like, how would we ever know? So instead, <laughs> they tend to focus, <laughs> focus on the possibility of surface life, um, mm. stuff, both microbes and animals and plants, things that would live on the surface and interact with the atmosphere and change the atmosphere in ways that we might be able to detect someday. But wow. there's just so much we don't know yet about what a, is the air made up of on extrasolar planets and mm -hmm. how is the star impacting the planet 
that we still have a really long way to go to answer the question of is life possible yeah. on exoplanets. Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> Alan, how many exoplanets are now known? like in exoplanets.org. So this is fun because even just as, you know, a, a relatively young person, like I remember when I was really young, it was like, you know, oh, we found the hundredth exoplanet and everyone was really <laughs> celebrating. And now Kepler alone's found thousands. Tess has found a bunch. I've went and checked the number of exoplanets right now is 4,914. Oh, almost so 5,000. 5, we were wow. right there. <laughs> Future Alan interrupting here. The other day, NASA announced that we've discovered 5,000 exoplanets. So that just goes to show how quickly astronomers are discovering new exoplanets. Thanks. Thank you. Wow. Thanks for that question, Gene. Really appreciate it. Uh, and it, it's a perfect launch point to just ask you, Jackie, about your science. Um, I told the audience a few moments ago, uh, we met when you were at NRAO in Charlottesville, but you've been doing a lot of interesting work using radio astronomy to study like stars and stars that specifically might have exoplanets around them, right? Give, give us a sense. Tell us, tell us a little bit about what you do. So I use radio wavelength telescopes, like the Very Large Array in New Mexico. The Very Large Array is, is the one that Jodie Foster was sitting in, in the movie Contact, correct? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I really... Have you, did you do that? I, have you ever sat in one of those? <laughs> I have sat in one of those dishes. Ah, you are Jodie Foster. That's amazing. Is it cool? Like, when you, like yeah, I, I just do optical stuff and we do not sit on the mirrors in the big telescopes. I'm sorry. But tell me about sitting in one of the dishes, the VLA dishes. They're big. I mean, they're, they're a whole bunch of, of them too. So the Very Large Array runs a thing called a summer school for... Um, for graduate students in astronomy where we can go there and learn how to use the telescope. And, um, and we also just get to visit the telescope and climb on it. And you can climb on a radio telescope and go sit in the dish because it doesn't have to be as perfect and smooth as an optical telescope mirror is. Any telescope is allowed to have some very small amount of bumpiness on it and still be able to reflect the light. And the longer the wavelength of the light that's hitting the telescope, the bigger the bumpiness that's allowed. So for an optical telescope mirror, the wavelength of visible light is uh, hundreds of nanometers. It's much, much smaller than the width of a human hair. Like this is tiny tiny yeah. and so mm -hmm. you can ha you need a super smooth surface and you don't want to touch that thing you put some dirt <laughs> on it you're messing up its reflectivity dirt huh. put a snowflake on it it'll kill it <laughs> whereas with a radio telescope <laughs> the light i look at the wavelength is 10 centimeters so <sighs> that's like put the two of your hands together and hold them out next to each other to get 10 centimeters so that means that you can have dirty footprints or whatever on the telescope, and it's not going to make any difference to the functioning of the telescope, which means we were allowed to climb all over it. That's amazing. <laughs> well, did you guys like do the salsa on there? Uh, if you have dirty footprints, uh, you, you can't jump on the thing, right? I think we mostly looked nervously over the edge. <laughs> These things, you want to, the things we're looking at in space are really far away and really faint. 
And a telescope is like a big light bucket for collecting light. The bigger you make it, the more light it can see and the fainter the things mm -hmm. it can see. So you make telescopes really big. So these things, oh, the VLA, I think they're 25 meters across in diameter. It turns Seven out stories. if the telescope's wow. that wide in diameter, it's pretty high off the ground too. So yeah. I was pretty much holding on tight. That's fair. <laughs> that would be cool. Okay, next time, see if we can get permission to bungee jump off one of those. That sounds like... Oh, no. Not to disrespect our radio telescope colleagues or anything, but if you can hang off a telescope, you should. Anyway, <laughs> oh, sorry. It, look, we interrupted you. Please go on. Yes, about the radio telescopes to measure these red dwarf stars. What is so cool about yes. that? Why do we do it? So I'm interested in how in magnetic storms on red dwarf stars and how they impact planets or hypothetical planets as of yet unknown planets around those stars. So a big question that I've been interested in is a thing called coronal mass ejections or CMEs. The sun's corona is this kind of hot, thin layer of gas around the sun if you ever look at a picture of a solar eclipse and you can see this white fuzzy stuff around the yeah. sun, that's the corona. And sometimes there's a flare, which is this sudden rapid rearrangement in the sun's magnetic field that causes a flash of light, a flare, but it can also cause an eruption or an ejection of coronal mass. And then Whoa. just a big blob of the corona detaches and spreads out into space. Whoa. And in the solar system, these things pretty much just cause a pretty light show for us. When they hit Earth, that's what causes the aurora, the northern ah, lights or the ah, southern nice. lights. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah. Um, which It'll is great. damage communication satellites if we're not careful. Though, oh, right? I, yes. I think I heard that a few years it ago. Does, it does also damage satellites. And... Um, there's some theories that it also carried away a lot of Mars's atmosphere. So coronal mass ejections may be one of the big reasons that Mars is now a very dry planet with only a wow. very thin atmosphere and unable to have liquid oceans anymore. Oh. So because of this, coronal mass ejections are potentially very important for whether people or life in general could exist on a planet. And the yeah. most common type of star in the universe is a red dwarf. Red dwarfs okay. are smaller than the sun and cooler, but that's a relative thing. They glow red hot, like the coils in a toaster oven, instead of white hot, which is like really, really hot, like the sun. <laughs> yeah. And so they're still about 3000 degrees on their surface. Compared to the sun, one thing that's different about them is they have much stronger magnetic fields, especially when they're young. A young red dwarf has sort of an average magnetic field that's a few hundred times stronger than the sun, mm -hmm. which means okay. that they yeah. have way more energy stored up in that magnetic field that can be released in these flares. Oh, so that's really dangerous stuff. Yeah. Powerful. <laughs> so okay. I can see why you want to study them. That makes a lot of sense. Now, now your technique of studying stars, I mean, this, uh, the, the coronal mass ejections and, and how you look at like radio bursts of stars, that dates back quite a long way, right? I mean, people have been doing this for a long yes. time, but not on the VLA. So it's 
tricky actually to see coronal mass ejections. They were only discovered around the sun in, I think, the 19, either 60s or 70s, when scientists put a telescope up into space that watched the sun, but it blocked out the sun, the light from the center of the sun, kind of creating like a permanent eclipse, a coronagraph. Mm -hmm. And that way they could see the faint light from the corona. Because normally, I don't look at the sun at home, everyone. But if you did, you would not <laughs> see the corona on a normal day. Because the no- main true, part yeah. of the sun is so bright. And even with a telescope from the ground, you can't see the corona. So it wasn't until people put a telescope in space and blocked out the center of the sun that they could start to see, oh, sometimes a piece of the corona just comes right off. Just flies off. Wow. And so because it's so faint, now imagine trying to see it in another solar system, very far away. That's really hard. But after coronal mass ejections were discovered, they were connected to something that had been discovered 20 years before that, which was radio bursts from the sun. Oh, right. The origin of radio astronomy was in the 30s and 40s, right? With like Grota Raber and um, Carl Jansky and people like that. Yeah, radio astronomy got a lot of development early on because of radar and unfortunately because of war. Mm. Um, People looking for sources of noise in their radar started finding that there was static coming from things that were beyond Earth, coming from the galaxy, coming from the sun, coming from and eventually coming from Jupiter. And after, after World War II ended, Various groups, especially one group in Australia, did a lot with this. Um, They started repurposing their equipment to study these radio bursts from the sun and see what they looked like. And they determined that there were many different types of bursts occurring. But many of these bursts, what would happen is they would start out at a shorter wavelength, which is a higher frequency of radio waves. If you radio waves are not sound, but if you made an analogy to sound, a higher frequency is a higher pitched note, like e, and then a lower frequency would be a lower pitched note, like and so <laughs> I got that one. The radio bursts they were finding were starting out at a high pitch, a high note, and going to a low note. So they'd go e. Hello, thank you. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I, that was, I was channeling Dory and Finding Nemo, so sorry about that. Yes, so, you know, it's interesting. I didn't know it was big in Australia because, you know, I, I my education is American mostly as far as that. Who were the people, like, like people who did this down in Australia? I, I didn't even know that there, this was going on down there. Yes. Oh, my gosh. There were a lot, but one person who I'd really like to highlight was Ruby Payne Scott. Um, And she's of particular interest to me because there were not that many women who had the opportunity to have a career in astronomy in the 1940s and 1950s. Um, She studied physics and chemistry and math in college, became a teacher. Then she got a job as a librarian at a radio at a radio engineering place during World War II. And somehow she managed to get herself promoted from librarian to something like the head engineer. She's just like, 
I got this. And nice. so then she started working on this radio science, looking at radio bursts from the sun after the war. And she and her collaborators were the ones to find and categorize these different types of radio bursts from the sun. And cool. her story, it has like, it's really cool to hear about her, but she also dealt with some challenges. Like when Uh-oh. she got married in the early 1940s, she had to hide her marriage because Australia had a rule that married women were not allowed to work for the government. So she had to keep her marriage secret to be allowed to continue working. And then when she got pregnant in the early 1950s, she ended up, I think her colleagues kind of knew she was married. (laughs) She ended up resigning at that point because there were no parental leave policies. So parental leave policies are important for making science work for everyone. Heck yeah. I mean, it sounds like... Someone should write a book about her. Uh, do you know, like, <laughs> Ruby Payne Scott, like, awesome astronomer who could not continue because she had a kid, you know, that kind of thing? Well, one of my favorite scientists from the National Radio Astronomy Observatory, Miller Goss, who's really, I, I adore him because he always reaches out to early career scientists to really be encouraging and be a mentor. He's actually written yeah. two books about Ruby Payne Scott. Oh. One called Under the Radar that's really written for other astronomers or students of astronomy that goes into mm-hmm. a lot of the technical details. And then one called Making Waves that describes the astronomy more qualitatively and talks about her life. Jeez, drama romance, fiction, family, that, that's, you know, you don't, you don't always think about that in terms of like science and science fiction, but I mean, it should be in there, right? I, yes, I prefer my astronomers to have happy endings in romance. Okay. <laughs> and so I love romance novels. And I also love right. like The Bachelor, The Bachelorette, all of that. And it's oh. taken a while for me to get comfortable admitting that to other scientists. <laughs> Although Fair. I promise you, lots of my friends in grad school love The Bachelor too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> let, let me just tell you, okay. Uh, we had, uh, we are still, in fact, running an undergraduate research program at the American Museum of Natural History, right? And it's been going in the summertime for, for more than 20 years now. But there was one summer not too long ago where the students were working in the common uh, reading room there at the museum. Uh, when they weren't streaming World Cup soccer, they were streaming that season's Bachelorette. So absolutely, I completely believe you. You are in good company. So so there's a that lot of that right. going on. And so you, you are one of those... You're one of those of our community who really like this. So so are there good romance novels about like celestial mechanics and stuff? <laughs> yes. So I just had started reading some of my famous, ro- favorite, not famous, they are famous, favorite romance authors. <laughs> and then recently I've just been like reading books and been like, wait, this book is about an astronomer. And it's been a <laughs> fantastic delight. Um, if some of those books you wouldn't know from the title. And then there's others where you do know from the title. One that I read <laughs> quite recently that I loved was The Lady's Guide to Celestial Mechanics by uh-huh. Olivia Waite. Uh-huh. Olivia Waite. And See, so that we were one just you talking... can probably guess. Yeah, we were just <laughs> yeah. talking about celestial mechanics, uh, you know, with the K2290 system. 
And so this is, and this yes. is new. This is not like, you know, published decades ago or anything. You, you said it just came out. No, this is a, I, I think this book is sometime in the past 10 years it's come out. Okay. Wow. I was going to say, okay. this is the little part where I jump in and say that it's a, romance novels are for adults, kids. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Alan. That is important. Romance novels, mature audiences. <laughs> yeah, and, and for mature. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Let's get to a question. Maybe two if we can squeeze it in. Go ahead, Alan. So this is the question from our patron on Patreon. Um, one, of, one of our patrons on Patreon. This one is from Walter T. Um, and it is a very philosophical question in nature. Is why do you think existence is not our universe specifically, but existence overall? Could true nothingness be an impossibility? <laughs> oh my gosh! Could true nothingness be an impossibility? Jackie, um, uh, take it, take it. <laughs> <laughs> Oof, this is above my pay grade. I think there's um, maybe two parts to this question. The first part was why existence? And the second part is true nothingness a possibility. So why existence? I think there's kind of a debate among physicists. Different physicists have different opinions about whether physics can answer that question. Mm-hmm. Historically, the approach among physicists has been trace the chain of cause and effect backwards. Right. So okay, why are we here? Well, we're here because life evolved. Why could life evolve? Because we exist on the earth. Why does the earth exist? Because it formed when the sun formed. Why does the sun form? Well, the galaxy formed. And we go backwards, backwards, backwards until we hit kind of this wall, which is the Big Bang. (laughs) Yeah. Mm. And the Big Bang is a wall because astronomers can't look past it. We can't see what happened before the Big Bang. And that's really a challenge for physics because we can make theories about what happened before that. Was it the universe was big and it collapsed and then bounced back out? Um, Is it some sort of like there are multiple universes and each one came out differently? There's Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. many different theories and these theories are connected to Um, physics theories that explain other things like quantum physics, there being many possible states for for a particle to be in, for example. Many worlds interpretation. I love it. We don't have a direct way as of yet to test these theories in the context of the history of the universe. And if it's not testable, then it's not a scientific theory yet, right? Yeah. I mean, that's about where I, I hate to throw it out from science, but it's in the <laughs> guessing games and hypothesizing part of science rather than the confirmed part of science. Like part of science That's is fair. always coming up with ideas. And sometimes ideas come up long before they're testable. Like the, I think Kant, the philosopher, came up with the idea of a black hole and he probably wasn't the only one ever. And that was hundreds of years before the idea of a black hole was testable. So I don't want to throw out theories of what happened before the Big Bang or why our universe exists from a physics standpoint. But I don't think we have tools to test physics theories about that yet. And so right now... 
choose your own answer for why existence, because <laughs> physics isn't going to tell you. Walter, you heard it from Jackie. You are hundreds of years ahead of your time. Congratulations. Thank you for that question. Uh, can we talk about the nothingness part? Can we? Yes, absolutely. Yes. Don't don't want to leave that out. So it, when we were setting up for this episode, Chuck mentioned general relativity in connection to this, which I think is because that's what I always do. Great. Because yeah, I just randomly ra- I randomly mention general relativity in my regular conversation. It does happen. <laughs> Sorry, please go ahead. So one of the super weird things from general relativity is that space can stretch and become bigger and make more space. And in the time since the Big Bang, we can think of it as everything flying apart, or we can think of it as each galaxy kind of sitting in its spot in space and the space between galaxies has actually been stretching and making more yeah. space. And yeah. for me, that kind of begs the question of like, if space can be created, like, can you have not space? Like, right. was there, is there a pre-Big Bang where there's no such thing as space? Wow. Um, it <laughs> definitely, it shows that our ways of thinking about space really aren't adequate to grasp um, to grasp how nature behaves. So maybe oh, yeah. maybe nothingness without even space is a possibility. I don't know. Okay. So so Walter, the answer from Jackie: Can there be nothing? Yes, there could be, but we don't know. We have to. I guess we <laughs> have to find a way to to look before the Big Bang. I mean, we certainly can't do that now. We may never be able to do that. Anyway, Jackie, it has been such a pleasure speaking with you and having you on today. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we'll have to do it over and over again in the future. Please come back, okay? Thanks so much. Thank you. This was really fun. I love chatting with you two, and everyone asked great questions. I agree completely. Yeah. Folks, please feel free, just as Walter did, support the Lunarverse on Patreon. Come join us. You're already here with us. Have fun with us. Thank you for being a part of the universe.